This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy and the companion advocacy organization, Energy Makes America Great, Inc. Each week, here on America's Voice for Energy, I have the opportunity to interview a variety of experts, specifically those who helped me with each week's column. This week, my column is entitled El Nino, La Nina, and Natural Gas. I got the idea to write this column because I'm frequently confused by what's El Nino, what's La Nina, and why should I care? But a piece came into my inbox that talked about how these weather patterns are impacting the price of natural gas. So for me, that was kind of like an aha moment. And like, this is what I'm going to write on this week. I got into writing this column on Saturday, as I usually do. And I have to tell you, I felt so over my head because I still was struggling with understanding this and trying to figure out how to make this something the average person would care about. Gratefully, our first guest came to my rescue, Joe Bastardi, who is the chief meteorologist at weatherbell.com and someone that I call on when I need to know about weather issues, about climate change issues, and he and I met I believe it was, Joe, in 2014 in Las Vegas, Nevada, at the Heartland Institute's International Conference on Climate Change. And I so appreciate your help, your back and forth with all your emails this weekend, Joe, as I tried to understand this topic in a way that would allow me to present it so the average person could understand it. I appreciate your help, and I appreciate you joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Well, I appreciate being here, especially with such a, uh, a noble cause. Uh, I often uh, challenge some of my uh, friends on the other side of the issue to, why don't you just try living one year without fossil fuels or anything that's made uh, with fossil fuels and see where you are. I, I guarantee you wouldn't be able to hear from them because they wouldn't have a radio, they wouldn't have anything, and they wouldn't have any Internet. So um, uh, you know I'm a big fan of energy, especially since I use it and we're always grateful of people working in the industry and what, what they've done to make our lives better. Well, with that lead, and I have to ask, do, do, do any of them uh, take you up on this offer to live a year without fossil fuels, or how do no, they react? No, of, of course not. This is, uh, uh, I mean, it's almost, uh, you know, the arrogance of a lot of them. No, look, there's some honest brokers on that side of the uh, on that side of the debate. There really are. There are people that are like, you know, people... Uh, People think that I'm all, you know, I'm a shill for the oil company. I was, uh, there's a, a documentary being made on Bill Nye right now, and I'm in the documentary as the counter uh, counterweight to Bill. And uh, the guys were telling me that Bill's going to be shocked to find out that I'm not who they told him I am. Uh, you know, he was told that I was just this guy that was making all my money from just going around giving climate talks and that I know that there's... Uh, you know, CO2 is causing, I mean, you know, it, it's, and, you know, that's, that's Alinsky's tax, tactics. So I'm not blaming Bill for what he heard from other people, but um, it's, a, it's a kind of situation where, you know, it's isolate, demonize, and destroy. And it really has very little to do 
with science that has to do with it. And this is the only conclusion I could come to, folks, after watching all this for many years, that uh, it has to do with an agenda that, uh, for one thing, uh, if your whole life is what these people have put it into, how can you turn around now? You know, it's, it's that way in the political sphere today. The, 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 the folks that call themselves progressive, which is sort of a misnomer since they're oxymorons, since the stuff they're advocating would limit what people can do and the freedom. It, it would be regressive. Yeah, it would be. It's, it's very regressive. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a soft tyranny that is hardening each day, you know, when people start saying, well, it's to prosecute these people and everything else. But um, the, the, you find that it really isn't about it. You know, the whole climate change thing, first of all, climate's been changing since time began. It's inherent in a system that has three-quarters of the land in the northern hemisphere, three-quarters of the um, uh, ocean in the southern hemisphere, rotates and wobbles on an axis around an inconsistent sun that all the Earth does with weather and climate is search for a balance it can never attain because of the very design of the system. People don't seem to understand that conflict is part of nature. And conflict, and, you know, my, my, my spiritual beliefs make me, make me believe that God put conflict in life and everything to force us to turn towards something that will elevate our levels, all right? So uh, you have a situation where if you have a group of people that don't want people's levels elevated, what are they going to try to do? Well, they're going to try to control the situation. And, you know, I, I, I use a lot of linkage in meteorology, a lot of linkage in the weather. And, uh, you know, there's linkage all across the board here to what I see in the AGW situation and what I see in the political situation. It's a huge red herring. It's probably not worth the time and effort that we have uh, put into it. But the fact is that, you know, uh, you've got a, a multi when you count the green ideas, and by the way, the Earth is greener than it's ever been in the satellite era because of CO2. I uh, you've got to watch yourself, folks. There are going to be trees trying to hug you because you exhale 100 <laughs> times more CO2 than you inhale. So, uh, so you know, whoever created this system, all right, if you don't believe in God, then, okay, whatever. You don't have to. But the fact is man and animals exhale 100 times more CO2 than they inhale. Plants love that stuff, and there's a synergism that has evolved through the ages that is natural to the planet just as the up and down in temperatures are. So climate change is a redundant term, saying 97% of the uh, scientists believe climate change is real. Of course, <laughs> who doesn't believe that the climate changes? We've had, we've had a rainfall. Yeah, and, and, that's an and that's an important distinction. That's an important distinction yeah. for those of us in the conversation to make, to not say, oh, no, I don't believe in climate change, but the man-made well, catastrophic... They, they, they had to call. They had to call. It was so catastrophic about the only true hockey sticks, folks, are the hockey sticks of uh, uh, personal wealth, uh, the hockey sticks of life expectancy, and the amount of people on the planet. There's 7.3 billion people on the planet now. Each person, on average, is making more than they did at the turn of the uh, the turn of the last century. Way more. I mean, it's just ridiculous. My friend Alex Epstein, who I love, uh, yeah, he he wrote the book The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I mean. He says it all. And, you know, I'm surprised they, they, aren't, they aren't in his case yet, although I hear they, they're starting to. But, yes, no, uh, he's, he's one of the ones that is listed in the Attorney General's uh, subpoenas you know, against ExxonMobil. He's, just, he's one of the targets. That's just despotic. And to tell you how, uh, to tell you how illogical this is, 
uh, you are comparing something that you exhale a hundred times more than you inhale CO2 to cigarette smoke, which has no business being in anyone's lungs naturally. If you want to go smoke cigarettes, I'm not going to stop you. But, I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. And you know what the problem is? You have a, a society today, you're seeing it in everything. People don't pay attention to actual statistics and facts. You're seeing it right across the board with some of the stuff that's going on today. And you get someone that can talk slick and put on a slick production, and they get away with it. And it's, uh, you know, it's a scary thing. There's only so much you can do to fight it. I'm not going to save the planet. That's how God put me here for it. Put me here to forecast the weather. But in the meantime, if I use use tools, and I know darn well someone's, uh, to be nice about it, spraying a hose down my back and telling me it's raining, I know, I know that to be true, and I'll speak up on it. Yeah, you mentioned talking about the that you're on the planet to predict the weather. You predicted back in February uh, this hot, dry summer oh, yeah. that is is across most yeah. of the United States. And and um, I want you to address that. We've only got we're down to about four minutes left, Joe. But well, I want it, you to address that. But let me just mention one thing. Are you seeing the climate change alarmists since you went into that topic? Are you seeing the climate change alarmists blaming this hot or using this hot summer as proof of climate change? Well, yeah, they use everything they can get their hands yeah, on. Yeah, of they course. Do a, they, do, they do have a valid, the global temperatures through the roof. It's the warmest year ever on the NSEP data. You know, I, I mean, Roy, I don't know if Roy's data is quite as warm, but I, what I do is every six hours, folks, the computer initializes a global temperature, and I wash out like a hawk. It's on the weather bell site, and it, the computer knows what's going on with the global temperature. And it's by far the warmest year on record. Um, and uh, But that was expected. I forecasted that last year. I said there's going to be a massive El Nino spike. I predicted in mid-2015, and then in 17 through 19, it will fall off back toward where it was and uh, perhaps lower than that, okay? Because I'm expecting, look, here's, it, it's very simple in the big, in, in my opinion, at the risk of sounding insulting, and grossly oversimplifying the situation. A lot of people, you know, the more complex something is, the more people say, well, you need me to solve it. I'm telling you the opposite thing. You know, it's interesting about me is that I'm the kind of guy that goes, you know what, I'm not needed for this. And, you know, my wrestling coach at Penn State taught me that. I said, good coach makes himself obsolete because he teaches what's going on and you don't need him anymore. But the fact of the matter is this. If you look at the natural cyclical evolution of the oceans, what we call the meridiano overturning circulation that Dr. William Gray, the late Dr. Gray, talked about so many times. You see that we are currently in a big warm cycle, and this has been going on for the last 20 to 30, actually 30 to 40 years, and it's about to flip to the cold cycle. As far as the El Ninos go, the El Ninos and La Ninas are individual events within the greater decadal events that occur. And so when the El Nino comes along, it spikes the global temperature. Why? Because if you're warming the tropical Pacific up, which is the number one source region for energy in the entire uh, global circulation, of course the air is going to respond and warm up. Why does it get hot in the United States? Because if you set the pattern with excess warm air before the summer comes, and then that air, that air is available to be dried out during the boreal summer over the United States, it gets hot. It's like clockwork all the time. It post and so summers are hot. 98 was hot. And you saw 83 get hot. You saw 77 get hot. 66 got hot. 88 got hot. In 2010, we got hot. 
And, they, you know, they started screaming in 2012 after three years of a La Nina, like we had in the 50s, same kind of thing. This is the beginning of the permadrought. Three years later, that changed. Three years later, this changed, too, for Texas. So it's just, there's just too much linkage to ignore to just naturally say, well, it's the increase of one molecule of CO2 out of every 10,000 molecules of air over a 100-year period. That's suddenly doing all this. I'm grinning as I'm listening to you rattle off all this weather data that you just know so well. Joe, we're down to like one minute. Tell us what can we expect with La Nina. Can you do that well, in a minute? La Nina is not coming on strong. There's no La Nina yet. There's cooling going on in the Pacific. But uh, because of, A, low solar cycles, I believe, because incoming, yeah. less, less incoming radiation reduces the strength of the easterlies in the Pacific, so you don't get that cold water up well. And, two, when a warm PDO, like in the late 50s, is coming on uh, quite slow. But what happens is we ju we've been forecasting endless summer. This warmth is going to last for much of the country well into fall. Winter will start in the west. There will be a late winter in the east, we believe, but it will get nasty in the east and central part of the United States, January, February, March. I'm not sure whether it's going to be able to start in December or we're going to have another warm December or not. But I'll tell you what, we are very bearish on the heating degree days into the fall, and then we flip around mid and late winter. Joe Bastardi, you're fascinating to listen to. I just love it. Thank you so much for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. We're out of time. We've been talking with Joe Bastardi, the chief meteorologist for weatherbell.com. Stay with us on America's Voice for Energy. We'll be right back. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. You're listening to americaswebradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're discussing El Nino, La Nina, and their impact on natural gas prices. So I'm excited to have back with us once again on America's Voice for Energy to discuss specifically the natural gas price element, Phil Flynn. And Phil is with the Price Futures Group, the author of the Energy Report and uh, frequent contributor, daily contributor to the Fox Business Network. So, Phil, thanks for joining me once again here on America's Voice for Energy. It's great to be here. I appreciated so much your help uh, on this particular column. I had Joe Bastardi on in the previous segment, and I, I had to thank him for his help as well as I was frustrated with this week's column, trying to figure out how to make it all come together. And you guys kind of held my hand and helped me uh, push through. And, and I, I think it turned out to be a pretty good column this week. Maybe not my best work, but I hope it gave uh, 
my friends in the natural gas industry some optimism, and you certainly helped with that. Well, thank you, thank you. I mean, you did, I thought it was a great article and very timely and something that people really haven't talked about, you know, because people have taken natural gas for granted, right? You know, we had this glut of yeah. supply and, you know, we can shut down the coal plants and shut down the nuclear power plants and don't worry about it. Uh, we have a glut of supply. Uh, but as you mentioned, El Nino and La Nina and weather factors uh, can make fools of us all. And, you know, when the weather changes, uh, we might find out that uh, this oversupply that we thought we had really might not be as big as we thought it was. Well, you and I had a conversation about the the coal-fired power plants being shut down and not being available to provide the excess capacity in the in the winter. Can you explain that for our listeners? Sure, no problem. When you have a power plant, for example, that runs mainly on, say, natural gas, uh, there comes a time during peak demand uh, where there's only so much available supply that can run through a pipeline to meet demand. And so they look to alternative types of demand, uh, and, for example, they'll flip back to coal generation to generate electricity. Uh, for example, if you remember back in the polar vortex, we saw those extreme cold temperatures, and there was a tightness of supply of natural gas because everybody was using it to heat their homes. Uh, and so uh, the power generators uh, flip back to coal plants to meet their power generation needs. Well, can can you explain that? How do they um, flip back to coal plants? Because it's my understanding that coal plants are not easy to turn on and off. Well, they're not, generally speaking. In fact, it's harder now than before. Uh, but uh, the power plants in question um, have a plan that when we heat peak demand that they can um, see some increased power generation from coal during some very peak demand periods where they can okay. have that available um, and that they can flip. It's not easy to do on a long-term basis, but when you have the coal plants set up and ready to go, it is easier to do during peak demand periods. But the problem Because they see those, they see those peak demands coming, and, and so they prepare accordingly. Would that be well, accurate? Exactly. But also, too, the plants are there. Now they're not there. Okay? So, okay. for example, back during the polar vortex, you know, it was easy to say, okay, we can call on these the coal generation. We still have the wires set up. We can start burning coal to meet that demand. Uh, so, essentially, back, you know, then you could flip a switch. The problem is now... You can't flip that switch because those coal plants are, have been retired and they're gone. And what's more, and a, and a larger concern, uh, because natural gas prices have been so low, nuclear power has not been profitable. So I know right. that right now uh, there was a report today that in New York and New Jersey, I believe in New Jersey, they're going to shut down two nuclear power plants potentially. Here in Illinois, two nuclear power plants. Um, which means it. And a couple of weeks ago, they announced they announced shutting down the last nuclear power plant in California a couple of weeks ago. There you go. And so you see what's going to happen is that now we're going to we expect more out of natural gas. You know, the other thing is is that later this year, for the first time since 1957, uh, the U.S. is going to be exporting more natural gas than they than they import. So that's a huge change. Um, 
and we're supposed to take it for granted because we have a so-called glut of supply, but you're not going to have a glut of supply if you have record demand over the next couple of weeks, and that's what we expect. You're going to see record demand for natural gas for power generation, which would probably deplete supplies uh, at a time when exports are going to start rising over the next couple of weeks. So it's the perfect uh, scenario to draw down in inventories and catch people by surprise, you know, ahead of next winter. Yeah. Now, when what are you seeing as um, the start of winter? Uh, I know that you must watch those things. And uh, when are you seeing, I've, the, in my research to write this column, there was some uh, prediction of La Nina, which will, means a really harsh winter, beginning as early as, um, you know, really the end of this month. Now, not that winter would start, but La Nina would start then. Bastardi says, no, no, late, late, late winter, even, or, or into, excuse me, late fall, even into, say, January. Right. Um, you know, I think with the La Nina, uh, it is going to take some time to settle in. And um, But from, from a natural gas perspective, the end of the resale, uh, refill season is October. And so by October, you really want to have enough natural gas in storage to fall back upon during periods of peak demand when it really gets cold. So if it gets really cold in December because La Nina set in and we get those cold temperatures, uh, you get the natural gas from the pipeline, but then you, that's when you fall back to storage. That's when you need that extra power generation. Uh, and, and it's possible that the supplies that we thought would be there at the end of this refill season, at the end of the summer, isn't going to be there because in the summer we're using more for, for heat generation. Right, because we're having this. Now, we're expecting, uh, uh, with La Nina, that polar vortex kind of conditions again in this winter, according to what I understand. If we see a polar vortex, and, and uh, we're going to test uh, the definition of adequate storage uh, for, for all time, you know, uh, and, and the reason why I say that is is that, we should have learned a lesson from the last polar vortex that we're not really ready um, to retire all these coal plants at a time when when the demand for natural gas uh, is is going up at the fastest level we've seen in decades, and we're just yeah, and reports re reports just came out of England, I believe it was that kind of said this same thing that they're they're going to have to pay premiums to to bring some of these coal plants back online because of their projected cold winter. That's exactly correct. And and the thing is, and I think one of the reasons why everybody's been so complacent is that every summer, you know, for the last five summers, really have been below normal from an air conditioning viewpoint. Um, the last five winters have really been above normal. You know, we haven't had the good old-fashioned winter. The last real test of the system we had really was the polar vortex, and we saw prices spike pretty dramatically back then. And, the and that was 2012, correct? Correct. And then the only reason we were able to bring those prices back down was because we had coal in the bullpen. You know, we were able to bring on more coal generation uh, you know, at the end of the day to, to take some of the heat off the natural gas. Um, 
the problem is, is with exports on the rise and, and demand rising here in the U.S., uh, and the retirement of these coal plants and nuclear power plants, uh, when we hit these peak demand periods, you know, um, I really wonder if we're going to have enough in storage to avoid rolling blackouts uh, and to avoid, you know, manufacturing plants having to totally shut down because they have to forego their gas um, in, uh, in, in favor of people staying warm and not freezing to death. So, you know, we might have those type of decisions to make in our future. Uh, do we want to keep the lights on or do we want to keep the heat going? And uh, that's not going to be a good position to be in. Yeah, I sound, may sound a bit masochistic, if that's the right word, but, you know, I kind of hope that, that, that those blackouts happen because I feel like the American public needs a wake-up call uh, to these policies that we've been putting forth. Yeah, I mean, we've had kind of uh, anti-energy policy, a disjointed policy uh, you know, from the administration. You know, we want to talk about solar and wind and put a lot of money into that, and we want to get rid of the coal plants, and that's all a great idea as long as you have a viable plan to make up for it. You know, and the only reason we haven't had a total disaster by shutting these coal plants down really is because Mother Nature really hasn't tested the status quo, you know, over the last couple of years. You know, so we've been able to, you know, quietly produce a record amount of supply uh, and, 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 and consume a record amount. Um, you know, and the shale gas producers, uh, you know, they've ro risen to the occasion, but uh, there are signs that natural gas production is going to peak um, you know, we have some of the lowest amount of natural gas rigs working in history. Um, admittedly, they're, they produce more, uh, but um, you can only squeeze so much blood out of a turnip. At some point, we now, now, do you think natural? Fall. Yeah. Do you think it's going to fall, or as you said, natural gas is going to peak because we're running out of natural gas, or because we are not because of the low prices we have pulled back on production? Because of the low prices, we fall back on production. Okay. What got us here in the natural gas revolution has been innovation, smart thinking, um, and, and now we're a victim of our own success. And because we've had a short-sighted energy policy in this country, um, you know, we really haven't nurtured the industry the way it needs to be nurtured um, before we let it fly on its own. And... Um, I think this false sense of security um, with supplies is really going to be called into question here over the next few months. If we get these hot temperatures um, in the Midwest's heat dome, uh, we could see some of the smallest uh, injections into storage in history. And this is the time of year where we, you know, should be putting away a lot of natural gas, you know, for next winter. Um, if we stop doing that, um, you know, then we can see a situation where, you know, going into next winter, if we do have a cold winter, we're going to see sharply higher prices. And we have a shortage of natural gas storage. Is that correct? Well, I mean, it depends on how you want to look at that. You know, one man's shortage is another man's glut. One of the, the things that I look at is at the five-year average when it comes to natural gas supplies. 
you know, and, you know, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, you know, going into this winter, I mean, supplies were, you know, like 55% above the five-year average. And, you know, there was this expectation they were just going to hang there and that we're just going to yeah. go into the winter with record storage. Well, now, over uh, because we had a very hot June, we're only about 22% above the five-year average. Um by the end of next month, we could be below the five-year average, um, especially uh, if these hot temperatures that they're predicting actually happen. So, yeah. um, instead, Bill, we're out of time. Next, I hate sorry. to, cu- I hate you to cut you no off, problem. but I'm out of time. It's fascinating. I love talking to you. I appreciate it. We've been talking with Phil Flynn with the Price Futures Group. He's the senior market analyst and author of the Energy Report. Uh, thanks so much for your expertise, Phil. It's fascinating to uh, discuss this with you. Thank you. Thanks. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Perfect, Phil. Thank you. Thank We're a little long, but David, David will deal with that. So. Thank you. All right, kids. All right. Talk appreciate you. your time. You. Bye bye. Thanks, Phil. Bye bye. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week we've been talking about my column titled La Nina excuse me, El Nino, La Nina, and natural gas. And as I stumbled on those terms, it's, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this column this week is because I get confused on which is El Nino, which is La Nina, and I wrote this column almost as much for myself as, uh, as for my readers because I wanted to, to be able to get it firmly in my head which is which. And uh, El Nino is, is the, the warmer weather that gives us actually oddly cooler summers but warmer winters. And La Nina brings us more intense whatever you are, meaning if you're in the cold parts of the country, it's going to be even colder. But if you're in the warmer parts of the country, you're going to see a, a milder winter. 
So we're going to talk next in this segment with a guest that's been with us before, Tony Del Torrio, who is a freelance writer in the financial topics. He focuses specifically on energy and commodities. And uh, so, Tony, when I wrote my column, you sent me an email back saying, good column, and I agree that natural gas prices are going to go up. So I invited you back with us uh, to discuss that topic. Yeah, it's nice to be back, Marita. Thank you. We've enjoyed having you on the show before and hope uh, it, it helps get you some additional exposure for your work as well. Yeah. So natural gas prices, I mean, I, to me, this is a good thing for the, the producers who, you know, read my column every week, and that's part of the reason why when I sort of saw this news out there, I thought, I, I kind of glomped onto that and said, I'm going to do this because there's been no good news for the natural gas industry in a long time. Yeah, very long time, many years. Uh, yeah, the price of natural gas has been stuck around, you know, uh, two bucks per million BTUs for a long time until very recently. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you look at natural gas. I've been doing this now for almost 10 years. I went to my very first uh, industry event the New Mexico Independent Petroleum Association annual meeting in August of 2006. So I'm, you know, right about at my 10-year mark. I didn't become executive director until January 2007, but I've been involved in this work now for almost 10 years. And it's funny, I look back at something I wrote very early on. I wrote a, a promotional piece to encourage people to become members. And when I look back at that piece, uh, which I recently threw away a big box of them, but I talked about that we were importing natural gas and how in those 10 years that I've been involved in this, how dramatically that has changed. I mean, we do still import a tiny bit of natural gas up in the, some communities in the Canadian border, as I understand it, but we're now exporting natural gas. Not a lot at this point, but because the facilities are not there, but we are actually exporting natural gas. We've had so much. We're right, exactly. Uh, the, the facilities uh, down in your area, of course, were originally built as, uh, you know, to import uh, uh, natural gas and liquefied natural gas, and now, of course, they converted those facilities to turning them into export facilities for the uh, liquefied natural gas. So, yeah, like you said, everything got turned on its head with the, the production. Uh, of course, a lot of it's uh, up my way. I live in western Pennsylvania. Of course, the Marcellus Shale has just been, you know, incredible, the amount of natural gas that they've pumped out of the ground around here. And how are things going economically in that area with the low natural gas prices that we've been experiencing uh, in recent years? Yeah, it's it's been it's been a struggle because uh, there, there's so so much natural gas coming out of the Marcellus, and not really as of yet the infrastructure, the pipeline to really get it out to the areas that need it. That the natural gas prices, you know, in this area have actually been lower than the national average. Uh, uh, I believe uh, you know about half of what the uh, national average price is. So, but the wow. thing. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, so the things that we're picking up, uh, Shell uh, recently, uh, about a month ago, said they are going to give the go-ahead for a big cracker ethane uh, plant in Beaver County, which is just a little bit uh, north of Pittsburgh. So, obviously, uh, y y you know, that'll help. You know, they'll 
offtake a lot of the ethane from uh, from those fields. So, and it should give this area a boost because it's been struggling a lot with the horrible pricing. Yeah, I read about that. Tell me a little bit more about that. What's that actually going to do? I, I remind you, you know, that I don't come from a background in this industry, and that's something I'm not terribly familiar with. Yeah, yeah. Basically, although I'm I'm not a petrochemical engineer either, but uh, yeah, basically uh, they'll take uh, the ethane, which is uh, sometimes uh, you know called wet gas, and that, but they'll take the ethane from you know that comes out of the ground also along with the natural gas and the cracker plant basically turns that into uh, uh, chemicals uh, I believe it's polyethylene uh, that chemical company right it becomes a feedstock for a lot of plastic yeah all the things that we use in everyday life exactly well that's good news now I assume since Shell is putting in this cracker plant in that area that this ethane uh, is is common in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it, it sure is. Again, uh, they've, they've been trying to just either keep it underground or just stuff it in the pipelines, and you know there was nothing they could really do with it. I think ethane prices were down to like twenty cents or, or something a gallon or, or something outrageously low like that. But obviously, with Shell coming on board, that that'll improve things a lot because there'll be. A, you know, a big end user of ethane. Yeah. You know, in the last segment, I talked with Phil Flynn, and he and I talked about uh, pipeline constraints, and that obviously in Pennsylvania there, you've got an abundance of natural gas. But if we have a really cold El Nino winter, there's not really the pipelines to get that natural gas to the northeast in particular. Right. After they've shut down nuclear plants and coal-fired power plants, they're really, really dependent on natural gas. And especially if you have a polar vortex, wind and solar don't do you much good. Um, what do you see happening on that? Ah, well, really uh, not much. I know both you and I have written about this. Uh, in the Northeast, uh, the environmental groups are still fighting pipelines to come from the Marcellus shale fields, you know, up to New York and, you know, places even further north in New England. And, uh, yeah, I remember I remember writing about, and I haven't followed this, I believe it was, I don't know if you know this either, but um, I wrote a while back, a couple of years ago, on the closure of the, I believe it was the Salem Harbor coal-fired power plant. And they had at the time, again, I haven't followed what happened, but at the time, they had a company who wanted to come in and buy the plant and convert the plant to natural gas. But the environmental groups, they needed a, a, a pipeline because the coal was able to come in by train and just be dumped there in the yard, so to speak. Right. But they need a pipeline for natural gas, and the environmentalists uh, were, were fighting to block that. Do you have any idea what happened on that one? I don't know in that specific case. Uh, I, I know, it, you know, the only thing I know is these pipelines are still being delayed because, again, you know, the environmental lawsuits there. So it's they probably won't, won't be built and completed anyways, probably at least for so, several more years. So they better hope uh, the La Nina winter doesn't really uh, <laughs> doesn't really strike the Northeast. But they are, but yeah, it's projected to. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, at one point. Uh, 
that, that people don't realize about the La Nina when, when compared to El Nino. As you mentioned, of course, it, it, uh, we, it gives us hot and dry summers, for instance, in the Middle East, you know, like uh, uh, our breadbasket there. But it also gives you very cold winters. And one point that people don't realize is that La Nina has a tendency to last longer than an El Nino event. So often El Nino may come and go like in one season where a La Nina event can possibly last a couple of years. Sometimes it could drag really? on over two years. Exactly, yeah. Because the last time, uh, I hate to drag it into agriculture, but when we, when we had that big drought in the Midwest, I believe it was 2012, when the grain prices went through the roof, well, that was the continuation of a La Nina pattern that had been in place for a couple years there. So, yeah, that's the bad thing about La Nina. It tends to sort of, you know, it's like a bad house guest, you know, doesn't want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, like I said, I, I read in, from my research that La Nina tends to make, it's like an extreme normal, whatever is normal for you. So those of us in the Southwest, which includes me, we're not going to expect, we are not expecting a really intense winter as a result of La Nina, but particularly the Pacific Northwest, the Midwest, and the Northeast uh, are probably going to be seeing a much colder winter and pro- volat- more volatile weather and um, back to polar vortex, as they call it, conditions. Yeah, exa- exactly right. And uh, as you mentioned, that should, should, what's already helped natural gas prices, which we got close to 3 per million BTU. I think they're around 280, but... It should help uh, should help the industry because uh, I know the natural gas count as far as the rigs, uh, beginning of June, June 3rd, uh, it hit its all-time low of only 82 active rigs in this country. So, uh, of course, since then, obviously, we've had a slight pickup since the nat gas prices have, have gone up. But this year, I don't know how far back it goes, but this year is the first year probably at least in a handful of years that where the increase in gas output in our country isn't keeping up with the rising demand, you know, that we've experienced, well, so far, because it's been a, a hot summer so far. Right, right. And, and why is the, uh, the output not keeping up, in, in your opinion? Well, again, uh, you know, the, as I mentioned, uh, the rig count is definitely down, so there's you know, less people, you know, actually actively, you know, bringing the gas out of the ground because, again, it's just, you know, t- the price is too low. And, of course, right. the, uh, and, and of course uh, the, the demand is up because with uh, the natural gas now uh, overcoming uh, uh, coal usage as far as generating uh, electricity, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Per use, uh, per every for each degree that the temperatures goes up and down, you use more natural gas. Uh, in sure. other words, because we're using less coal, we're using more natural gas to fire our power plants. You know, I've only got about thirty seconds left, Tony, and this is a little bit out of left field. And you may just say, "I have no idea." And by the time I ask the question, we're going to be down to you just saying yes or no, basically. But, you know, Donald Trump has promised he's going to bring back the coal industry. Do you think that if he is elected president that he, that's a possibility? Can the coal industry be brought back? 
My opinion, no. Uh, I, I don't believe so. Hard news, hard news. Well, yeah. I, hope that, I hope that he can at least slow the decline. Yeah, that's but, what uh, I'm hoping to. Fingers crossed, yeah. Yeah, great. Tony Del Torio, thanks so much for joining us today uh, to discuss the, the natural gas prices. Appreciate your time and expertise. Okay, thanks, Marita. Take care. We'll, we'll look forward to next time. Stay tuned. Right. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking today about El Nino, La Nina, and natural gas. Within my column, I tucked a few comments that I lifted from a blog that I found and a new source that I was totally unfamiliar with, an organization called ACOVA. And the blog post was written by Jonathan Lee, who is their senior energy market intelligence manager, which is a very impressive sounding title. And Jonathan's post was titled, La Nina and Energy Price Increases on the way, question mark. And I picked this up, and he talked about the, elect, the impact to electricity generation of the rising price or the potential rising price of natural gas. So I reached out to Jonathan, and he's with us for this closing, closing segment today. Jonathan, thanks for joining us on America's Voice for Energy, and I'm pleased to uh, make your acquaintance. It's a pleasure to be here, Marita. I hope you'll be with us many more times. So let's get right into the topic. We've already talked with a couple of commodities brokers who feel that the price of natural gas is definitely going to be on the rise. And, of course, we've already seen uh, a dramatic increase in the last couple months. What do you see happening? You know, I would have to uh, concur with them. Um, From the information and the fundamental factors that that I'm looking at, uh, in terms of natural gas, the uh, with supply starting to, uh, even though supply is still very strong, uh, there's some demand uh, p- 
pieces that are coming online, uh, especially focused towards this winter as, as you look at the, the power sector soaking a, up a lot more uh, natural gas as, as the U.S. produces more electricity from, from natural gas fire generation. A lot has come off from coal fire, uh, as a source of energy generation. And so, uh, you know, looking out towards this winter, I could see prices continue to, to trend higher uh, as we, we move towards winter. Now, how long does it take for that kind of pricing to translate into consumers' energy consumers' energy bills? Does that happen almost immediately, or do they have to go to the Public Regulatory Commission, for example, and, and plead their case to get a rate increase? It depends on, on the scenario. So in much of the, the states in the the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast, New England, those are uh, deregulated uh, states. So in terms of a commercial customer, um, if they operate their own third-party supply contracts, uh, they could see those increases real-time if they were on a, say, an indexed-type product. Uh, on, uh -huh. the, the reg on the regulated side or a, a customer or residential commercial side that, that does not uh, operate their own third-party supply contracts, that does correct. Has to go through a regulatory process. Could take, could show up. Um, in New York, it's it's monthly, so it's it's more uh, impactful early on. In in other states in the the Mid Atlantic, uh, Midwest, it can take anywhere from three to four months to to six months to to show up on a customer's bill. So it's not years. In terms of supply, uh, is what we're we're talking about here. Uh, that tends to impact bills sooner when you're talking uh, distribution, which is another side of a customer's bill. Um, that, that does tend to take uh, years to, to go through the, the regulatory rate-making process. Yeah, I, I was wondering if people will feel it, you know, because I feel like, and, and I don't recall if you said this in your column or whether I just added it, because I, you talked about wholesale you, you, uh, electricity prices tumbled along with the wholesale price of natural gas being at their lowest level in 17 years, and that's something that I listed from your column. And um, but I, I feel I feel like the low price of natural gas over the last several years has really hidden from the consumer the high cost. Of renewables going going into the power supply. Uh, that could certainly be um, certainly be the case uh, with natural gas being so low. Um, it's it's masked not only uh, potential increases from the renewable side, uh, but also on the the distribution side. So utilities are looking to strengthen their infrastructure, um, and the the impact to customers isn't as great um, when. Supply is, is lower, as it has been the last couple of years outside of, you know, that winter of 2013, 2014. Um, but it, it does tend to mask overall increases in other areas of, of the energy market. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that I'm kind of right on that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the expert on this that you are. I write generally. You and I haven't interacted a lot before, but I write on energy issues generally, and so I count on experts such as you for a more specific uh, expertise, but that's been my perception: is that these low nat natural gas prices have may have uh, prevented consumers from feeling the full hit 
of the higher cost renewables. And as a result, because, you know, most people don't follow this stuff. Most people, they just look at the bill, pay the bill. They don't, they don't really look at what the bill is broken down to and what they're paying per kilowatt hour and so forth. Right, it, it's, it's a complex, uh, you know, bill. If you look at your utility bill, there's there's charges on there that, you know, it's it's like, hey, where did where did that, where does where does that go, or what does that pay for? And utilities try to do a good job of of uh, uh, informing the the consumer about those, but, um, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes as a looking at my residential bill, it's it's sometimes you're you're looking at things that just don't quite make sense. Yeah, that, that's definitely definitely a factor. So, what are, do you think, um, from your perspective as senior energy market intelligence manager, uh, are we going to be seeing some uh, shortages, power shortages, uh, this winter? I don't think that's necessarily going to happen this winter. Um, you may have been following in the news the the situation in, in California with the, the the natural gas storage leak at Aliso Canyon uh, and yeah. the potential for them, customers in the L.A. market, Southern California, to have rolling uh, rolling blackouts or about the um, utility commission said about maybe 14 days this summer. I don't think that that's had an Yeah, actually, I, I, wrote on that, I wrote on that two weeks ago. So, yes, I definitely have been following that. Uh, but in terms of, of shortages, uh, blackouts, I uh, – I, I don't see that happening uh, this winter. Um, there's still a lot of um, uh, sources. Uh, if, if you know, potentially, if we get into the winter, uh, if you look back, you know, the winter of 2013, 2014, the so-called polar vortex winter. Um, right. There, there is potential for uh, price volatility heading into that that time frame, uh, specifically due to um, in the in the New England market. Uh, the infrastructure for pipelines to, to move natural gas um, to those power stations and at the same time to, to move it to uh, homes and businesses as people like to, to stay warm during the winter, which is... The funny a, thing about that. Yeah, right. Um, so the, the pipelines aren't built out enough to potentially handle some of those, those really cold winter days, especially when it's prolonged cold periods like we saw a few winters back. Yeah, and that's what Phil Flynn was talking about, particularly in New England, and that same idea that you just mentioned is why, I don't know if you noticed in my column, there's just one little phrase where I talk about pipeline constraints, and I just threw that in there, but that's what I was, that's what I was thinking of when I use that phrase, pipeline constraints, that particularly in New England, that as they've shut down nuclear and shut down coal, both of which I'm a fan of, but they've shut both of those down but yet don't have really the pipelines to provide the natural gas uh, on a high-demand time as this La Nina winter uh, projections may do. Correct, and that, that is a concern that uh, commercial uh, Customers in those in that footprint should be should be aware of heading into to this winter. Um, prices aren't you know super volatile at this point. Um, so if they if they do manage their own third party supply contracts, it's something to look at um, before you know the winter really really kicks in. 
Well, let's talk for a moment. Your call, your piece you wrote, as I said, it's titled La Nina and Energy Price Increases on the Way. Um, what, what's the role of La Nina? What are you looking at as you're trying to, uh, because you, you try to help utilities uh, manage this. Is that, am I correct in understanding what you all do at ACOVA? Uh, we, we help utilities with, with some of their uh, programs. Uh, we mostly focus on the commercial industrial side, helping them manage their energy prices. Okay. So you're obviously looking at, at La Nina. What are you telling them? Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's in the early stages, uh, but right now uh, the, the National Oceanic Admi Atmospheric Admi Administration, so NOAA, is basically saying that there's about a 75% chance that La Nina will occur this winter. Over the last 65 years, um, La Nina occurs in, in a weak to, to strong state. Um, it's happened every time um, over the last 65 years, two years, at least two years following. Um, so what does that La Nina mean for the U.S. Uh, in terms of winter? There's still a lot of other factors that come into play, but in a traditional scenario, um, cooler, wetter temperatures, uh, conditions, weather conditions affect the Midwest, northern Midwest, upper Midwest, uh, mid-Atlantic, northeast New England market, and then usually the southern tier of the nation is, is drier and warmer. Um, so we, we talked about the, the pipeline constraints in the New England market. So if you get a, a really cold winter up in that market, uh, those are some of the highest priced uh, energy costs in the nation. And so volatility could come back and, and potentially shock some customers heading into this winter. Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, an interesting, interesting thing to follow. And personally, I, I, I hate to sound masochistic, but I kind of hope that that happens more. I hope it happens more to residents. I mean, I don't really hope it happens. I hate to say that. Right, right. But, uh, but I, you know, people, the, the energy policies that we have are so – in my opinion, detrimental, that we, you need something like that to wake people up. And, Jonathan, we've got about a minute left for your, your closing comments on that. Uh, not, to, not to weigh in too much in the, in the political uh, arena, but um, any, any uh, you know, policy that, that, that focuses mostly on one, one source or, um, you know, can, can have impacts, you know, down the road. It's um, in terms of... Uh, energy prices, they've been pretty low if you look at the last 12 years or, or 17 years for that matter. Uh, we're at one of the lowest points, um, and we have been for the last, you know, three, four years, relatively speaking. And so, you know, something like a, a, a really volatile winter or volatile summer uh, does tend to wake up uh, people and, and have them take a, a closer look at, at what's going on, you know, in, in the details, and so that's, I think, always a good thing to, to know what's, what's happening um, where you have your, your house or you have a, a national footprint of businesses. Yeah. Well put, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking with Jonathan Lee, Senior Energy Market Intelligence Manager for ECOVA, and I encourage you to do an Internet search on his comments if you're interested in this topic. We're out of time on America's Voice for Energy, heard every week on AmericasWebRadio.com. Thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.